Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. We've talked about a fair number of wins on this show, but this is a big one. This is indeed. On our weekly hits, we are leading off with the huge flip in New York's third congressional district. But there was also another big Democratic win in a special election for the Pennsylvania State House. And then we are off to New Jersey, where Congressman Andy Kim pulled off a huge victory at an important endorsement convention in his bid to become United States Senator. Then for our deep dive, we are talking this week with Alex Rorty, who is a politics reporter at Notice, a brand new nonprofit newsroom. We're going to be talking all about their model for journalism in the 21st century and also going to be digging into a whole bunch of down ballot races with Alex. It is another fantastic episode of the down ballot. So let's get rolling. Well, my friends, that fucking rocked. I'm talking about Tuesday night. Democrat Tom Swazi, of course, beat Republican Mozzie Pillip 54 to 46 in the special election for George Santos's seat. That matches Joe Biden's eight point win in New York's third congressional district. And that means that Democrats just flipped a swing seat. Yes. And obviously, all of these election results that we've been talking about as they've come in and been good have been really you know fun to talk about. But it's especially exciting when you get to flip a Republican held seat when we're so close to the majority, we're trying to you know bring it back. So so getting the seat in our corner, I think, is a real, real exciting moment. There's just no question about that. The mood among Democrats, progressives, folks online was just fantastic on Tuesday night. So let's get down to the numbers because, of course, that's what we always love to talk about here on the down ballot. As a result of Swazi's flip, the House now has 219 Republicans and 213 Democrats. There are also three vacant seats, one that's Democratic held and the other two that are GOP held. These are all going to have special elections over the next few months, and all of them will almost certainly remain with the party that currently holds them. The Democratic seat is quite blue. The GOP seats are quite red. So if everything unfolds as expected, that means the House would stand at 221 Republicans to 214 Democrats, meaning that Democrats would need just four more flips to take back the House in November when, of course, all 435 seats will be up. But there is an asterisk here. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not quite that simple. The real number as we think of it now is actually five seats because due to redistricting over the past couple of years, a number of states have adjusted how many actually safe seats there are for both Democrats and Republicans. North Carolina, of course, the GOP there went and gerrymandered that map all to hell. So that eliminated three Democratic seats and created three new Republican safe seats. So that would increase the number actually all the way to seven. But thanks to litigation under the Voting Rights Act, both Louisiana and Alabama have added new black majority seats that will elect Democrats. So that takes it down by two. And so it nets out to one extra seat for Republicans, thanks to all of the redistricting that's happened so far 
which would result in Democrats needing to win five more seats to take back the majority in November. Of course, there still may be redistricting in additional states, most notably New York, that we're still waiting on. So that number remains to be seen as these final processes go through. So let's talk about the race itself. And in particular, I want to talk about the aftermath because Republicans were just full of excuses as to why they managed to screw the pooch so hard on this one. Punchbowl's Jake Sherman has been reporting on a lot of this stuff, and he rounded up a whole bunch of them. So House Speaker Mike Johnson, he said, Democrats spent $15 million to win a seat with a known candidate against an unknown Republican in a Biden district, so no one should panic. Well, go right ahead. Keep believing that. Johnson also blamed the weather, which is really funny because why should bad weather, there was some snow, hurt Republicans more than it would hurt Democrats? Of course, we know the reason why. And it's Trump's war against male voting that has led Republicans to vote in much greater numbers on Election Day. This was the scenario that we always kind of wondered about slash hoped for. Terrible weather on Election Day with a lot of Democrats voting early or by mail. And oh, if Republicans think that's why they got screwed, how are they going to change that in the future? Yeah. Hey, maybe stop being so crazy about mail voting. But also, to be clear, Swazi's margin was plenty, plenty above anything where this would have mattered. So chalking it up to the snow is just the the height of excuse making. Absolutely. Swazi's margin was outside the snowplow margin of error. (laughs) So NRCC chair Richard Hudson said pretty much the exact same thing. He emphasized that our Democrat opponent, fuck you, dude, Democrat. I I can't believe this childishness that they still pull. (laughs) Our Democrat opponent, spent decades representing these New Yorkers. Okay, okay, except except before the election, Hudson said that Mozzie's incredible life of service stands in stark contrast to career politician Tom Suozzi. So which is it? Boo, Tom Suozzi, career politician, or, oh, it's not fair, Tom Suozzi's a career politician. Yeah, and it's not like, A, they didn't know that it was going to be Suozzi. It was clearly going to be Suozzi basically from day one. And B... It's not like Philip was, you know, foisted on them by the voters. You know, we've certainly seen plenty of scenarios where Republican primary voters stick the NRSC or the NRCC with a difficult candidate or Trump sticks them with a candidate <laughs> that they wouldn't have otherwise wanted. This was not the case here. No, They picked her. The GOP county parties, they get to go into a back room and pick the exact candidate they want. And they picked Philip. So all of this complaining after the fact, whose fault is it? It's your own fault for picking her. <laughs> so, so speaking of Trump, he, of course, said that Philip lost because she didn't kiss his ass enough. But he says that after every election. <laughs> uh, Jake Sherman had some more that weren't necessarily sourced to particular individuals. One was that the Nassau County GOP machine is, quote unquote, useless after supporting Philip and Sandoz, which is so funny because, Beard, how many articles did we see after 2022 and 2023 when Republicans did really well on Long Island? Oh, the vaunted Nassau GOP machine is back, baby. Democrats are running for the hills. And now all of a sudden they suck. Yeah, which also doesn't make any sense because they have had successes in you know local elections and stuff. And Honestly, they did get George Santos elected in 2022. So, you know, it didn't work out well for them. But right. That was difficult. I, I would think it's pretty difficult to get George Santos into Congress. So they can't be <laughs> that bad. That, so talk about a, a line on your resume. We got George <laughs> Santos elected. Like you said, not easy. So 
Another line of attack was that Pillup herself hid out and did not raise enough cash. Now, that is absolutely true. She ran the ultimate basement campaign, and it was really quite amazing to watch. Our Daily Coast Elections colleague, Jeff Singer, pointed this out, that at the start of the race, before she was even selected, Pillip was viewed as this unicorn candidate, a black woman, Israeli, Jewish, had served in the IDF, Ukrainian-American husband. Uh, it, it really, you know, she seemed to be picked by the GOP because she checked all these boxes, so to speak, and she was treated as this kind of unicorn candidate. But then very quickly... In fact, really from day one, they started hiding her from reporters. They wouldn't let her answer questions. She was almost invisible and she just became generic Republican. And not only that, generic Republican with no real fundraising network who got terribly badly outraised by Swazi, like three or four to one. Yeah. And I think it also comes back to to an ongoing misunderstanding that Republicans seem to have around diversity, which is they view it as this like, oh, they're just over there like checking boxes. And so when they try to do it, they're just like, oh, I'm just going to find a candidate that checks a bunch of boxes. I'll show them. When obviously from our perspective as as Democrats, we want a diverse caucus because it makes a strong caucus. And we want strong candidates who happen to be African-American or Hispanic or women to run because that makes us all better as opposed to just being like, we need like to check a bunch of boxes because that usually doesn't work as the Republicans found out. Yeah, no kidding. So we have so many excuses. I got to like, I got to pick up the <laughs> piece here. Yeah. So Sherman also said that a bunch of folks were saying that House Republicans shouldn't have expelled Santos. I mean, like, okay, you know, then then you still have Santos hanging around every day. I mean, that, 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 that one's on you. But the, the best one from journalist Jacqueline Sweet said she heard, quote unquote, local GOP chatter. And, and this is an exact quote from, from a tweet of hers, that older Italian-American male voters were shy on Mozzie because of race slash accent. I mean, wow, shy on Mozzie. I mean, yeah. what, that, that, that is a phenomenal way of saying we're total racist assholes. Yeah. But I, I, I'm just conjuring this this image of Sopranos esque voters being unwilling to vote for <laughs> Mozzie Pillow and instead voting for a fellow Italian American, Tom Swazi. Instead, <laughs> even though he's a he's a Democrat, I mean, like, wow. I, I, you know what? Like, maybe that's even true. I don't know, but holy crap. Yeah, I mean, I think it was inevitable that all of this start coming out as soon as Pillow lost. I think Republicans love to make excuses to show why their loss wasn't actually a loss. Whereas Democrats, of course, when they lose, they like to self-flagellate and talk about how terrible Democrats are. Republicans, when they lose, like to talk about how terrible everything else was so that they don't have to blame themselves or question anything that they did wrong. But ultimately, like I said, this was the ultimate like party run process. So if Republicans didn't like their candidate or they didn't like how things were going, they have no one to blame but themselves. I think you absolutely nailed it. And There are two critical things that Republicans are not saying because, of course, they refuse to do the actual introspection that you're talking about, Beard. Number one, they still have no answer whatsoever on abortion. That was a key topic for Swazi and Democrats. They ran a lot, a lot of ads hammering Pillip for opposing abortion. And that is just going to be the case in basically every race across the country in November. But we already knew that was going to be the case heading into this election. 
What really should trouble Republicans is that they thought that their best answer was to not talk about abortion at all, but instead to fearmonger about immigration. And that did not work. Now, Swazi definitely ran to the right of many Democrats on immigration, but Republicans still attacked him mercilessly on the topic, and it failed. Mike Johnson even said that Swazi sounded like a Republican talking about the border. So does that mean that the GOP ads attacking him were false? I mean, goodness gracious, please alert the NRCC. Yeah, and I think what it shows is that immigration is not some sort of silver bullet for Republicans. The way that it feels like Democrats are so often terrified of it, that you don't have to be. Obviously, Swazi took a particular path and maybe, you know, due to the fact that it was on Long Island, the fact that obviously New York City has had a lot of, you know, issues, particularly with just dealing with an influx of migrants due to some unique circumstances, Maybe that was the right track for him. Obviously, he won. But I think what it shows is that you can take the issue, tackle it in a way that works for your area and not be afraid of it and feel like you're just going to get destroyed by your Republican opponent. You can go after them on it. You can show the fact that Republicans are the one who killed the border deal that the Senate put together. You know, there are answers to this that you don't have to be afraid of as a Democrat, no matter where you are. Absolutely. I think that the unbelievably cynical move that the GOP pulled with that border compromise that was hammered out by a super conservative Republican senator from Oklahoma that was on the whole a very conservative bill. I think that they think that they can get away with this cynical crap that, Mm -hmm. oh, the right move politically was to yank it because Trump thought it would hurt him and therefore yanking it will help us politically. But I really think that the cynicism for once broke through. Reporters were just really gobsmacked by this. And it's not like Democrats are going to forget. Now, like you're saying, Beard, we get to run ads on exactly that. Democrats wanted to do something about the border and Republicans said no. Yeah. And honestly, it's it's the best of both worlds. And obviously, Democrats couldn't have pulled this off voluntarily. They They had to have the Republicans decide to pull this. But what you have is Democrats who are able to say, hey, We took this really tough compromise. We had these really, really difficult border policies that a lot of people in the Democratic Party really hated and opposed. And we offered it. We were going to put it in place to deal with the border. And the Republicans said no. So you get to have this harsh thing that you were going to be willing to support without actually having to implement it because the Republicans stopped you. So folks on the Democratic side aren't that upset because it never went into law. So it's actually just like the perfect scenario to be able to run tough on the border without having to actually put in bad policies. So I think the best coda of all for this race, Politico's Jeff Colton noted that Pillip's election night watch party and her big rally the night before the election and her debate watch party the other day all took place outside the district. I mean, forget about a basement campaign. That's like an outer space campaign. I, well, I mean, where are you going to find a venue in Nassau County to host something like a debate <laughs> watch party, right? Right. That's like, there's none of those there. Oh, man. Well, it, it really just seems like her campaign was total shambles. She uh, expressed some sentiments suggesting she might want to try to run again in the primary, which is in June. I really don't see Republicans wanting her to be the nominee in November. I really wouldn't be surprised if they went in another direction. But I also highly doubt that they'll beat Swazi at this point. He won by eight points with special election turnout. We know that 
turnout sucked in New York in 2022. That's not going to be the same in November with Joe Biden on the ballot, with everything at stake. I just don't see him losing. But I invite Republicans to try. Yeah, given how much defense Republicans are going to be playing in New York, I would be shocked if they spent any significant amount of money on this race once the fall comes around. The wonderful thing is that this was by no means the only fantastic election result from Tuesday night. Yes, there was another special election, didn't get quite as much national attention, but it was also really important. Over in Pennsylvania, Democrats easily held on to Pennsylvania House District 140 and therefore the Pennsylvania House itself. Of course, back in 2022, the Pennsylvania House elected 102 Democrats and 101 Republicans. So Democrats have this one seat majority. And every time there's a special election involving a Democratic seat, that has the potential to put the entire chamber at risk. And so we've seen this happen a few times last year. This was another opportunity. This was a Biden plus 10 seat in in Bucks County, which is in the Philadelphia suburbs. Obviously, Democratic leaning, but it's represented by Republican Brian Fitzpatrick at the federal level. So by no means impossible for a Republican to win. So this was certainly something that Democrats had to take seriously. But they took it seriously and they crushed it. Democrat Jim Prokopiak crushed his Republican opponent, Candace Cabanas, 67% to 32%, just a massive overperformance compared to the presidential baseline. Now, that means that the chamber is now 102 Democrats to 100 Republicans. There's currently a vacancy in a a very safe GOP seat that will be filled by a future special election. But one other note I wanted to make on this for both the previous special and this one, we talked about the snow. There was also a healthy amount of snow in the Philadelphia suburbs, which led the Republican candidate Cabanas to post on Facebook, and I'm quoting this, Just a reminder to our voters, this is why we talk about mail-in ballots while we knock on your doors to introduce ourselves. Many of you turned down using a mail-in ballot as you promised me you would be at the polls on election day. None of us can predict the future, dot, dot, dot. You might be sick, have another type of emergency, or the weather turns like today, end quote. So obviously, Cabanas heard quite a bit of, no, I won't be doing a mail-in ballot, but don't worry, I'll vote on election day, and was a little worried when it was snowing that her voters were not going to show up Seems like probably some of them didn't, given the result. So Republicans, maybe rethink this mail-in ballot thing. It's it's not working out too well for you. You know, usually you don't see candidates so directly blame their own voters for their loss. (laughs) But I mean, you turn down using a mail-in ballot as you promised me. I mean, you promised me you would be at the polls. You know, even if every Republican had picked up a mail-in ballot, she still would have gotten her ass kicked. This was a 25-point overperformance by Prokopiak. Pennsylvania Democrats should be feeling really good about this one. Yeah, yeah. But I just imagine her like inner monologue of being like, you stupid voters who wouldn't just send your mail-in <laughs> ballots while she's trying to like filter it into her Facebook post. <laughs> oh, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I could picture it perfectly. So there's one other feel-good story this week. Uh, about a different sort of election. We are going to keep it in the Northeast, in the Mid-Atlantic area. Congressman Andy Kim just won the endorsement of the Monmouth County Democratic Party last weekend. This is in the race for Senate in New Jersey, the Democratic primary. And it's a huge deal because unlike all of the other counties that have endorsed so far, Monmouth held an open convention with a secret ballot and Kim won in a 57 to 39 landslide over Tammy Murphy. Murphy has won the endorsement of every other county so far, 
But all of those endorsements have been warded either by a tiny cobble of leaders or even just a single power broker. It's been pure machine politics. And the machine has lined up behind Murphy because she's the governor's wife, Governor Phil Murphy. Monmouth was completely different. It was a true test of popularity. And Kim came out on top bigly. Now, as we've mentioned on the show before, candidates in New Jersey who win county endorsements get special placement on the primary ballot in that county. And that special placement gives you a big boost with voters, as many studies have shown. It's a totally corrupt system, and Kim has called for its abolition, but he's also acknowledged that he's got to work within that system in order to win. There was even reporting that Murphy had been offered a co-endorsement by the county, but declined, thinking she would win outright at the convention and not have to share the spoils. Obviously, her whip count was terribly off base, and that says very, very bad things about her campaign. But as one progressive organizer put it to Politico's Matt Friedman, the county Democratic committee members who voted at this convention in Monmouth had been publicly pressured to say they would back Murphy. But once they had the benefit of a secret ballot, they were free to vote their actual conscience and vote for Kim. And Friedman, in the same piece, he had an amazing kicker, referring more generally to the rollout of big name endorsements for Murphy. An unnamed Democratic operative said, no one really liked this. It's just that for them publicly, Andy Kim wasn't worth the fight with the governor. I don't think any of them are going to be upset if Tammy loses the primary. That just feels devastating to me. I mean, a total Potemkin campaign. Yeah, and I think that lack of of energy and enthusiasm comes through to voters. The way that the Murphy campaign has run this has been a very classic, like, you know, machine first, endorsements first, voters last sort of campaign. And that can work, particularly the, the less visible that campaigns are. You know, it works a lot at the lower levels where voters are never going to know very much about like county commission candidates or, or other type of local candidates. And they often will just vote the, the line, as it's called, on the New Jersey ballot. That's why it's so successful and why that's so much demand to get it. I do think, you know, at the Senate level, an open Senate seat likely, as we don't expect, you know, Menendez to run again is very, very high profile. That's the kind of thing voters think about and decide before they go into the ballot box. And so you have to run the kind of campaign that reaches and inspires these voters. And that's what Kim has been doing. And it does the same for these sort of like mid-level county committee person type activists or, or local officials that vote in these type of conventions like this Monmouth convention. They are still voters. They're Democratic base members and they want to be excited and inspired by the candidate. And that's what Kim offers. And that's the opposite of what Murphy offers. I think you nailed it. And there are a whole bunch more counties that have yet to endorse. In fact, most haven't yet. And many of them are this machine style. But a bunch of them do open conventions with secret ballots, just like Monmouth. And I think this really has the potential to open the floodgates for Kim and for his campaign to pick up a whole bunch more of these endorsements, get positive news coverage out of this, generate more excitement with voters. And let's not forget, every single public poll has shown Kim leading by double digits. The Murphy campaign has not countered that in any way, shape or form. I'm really starting to feel good about Kim's chances, which is just hard to believe you could ever say about an outsider in New Jersey. But I think he could really strike a deep 
blow against the Jersey machine. And I am so here for it. Yeah. And I think ultimately Murphy will probably have the majority of the ballot lines regardless, because a number of the big democratic counties, like you said, are, are decided by one person or just a handful of people. But I think particularly if Kim can get a healthy percentage, like winning these open convention counties, he is much better positioned to run what they call off the line campaigns, which is to run in these counties and push voters to go vote for his name, even though it's off like the normal Democratic County ballot line and get a good percentage of votes in those counties. Whereas I think Murphy will struggle to run off the line and get people to go you know, pick her out and vote for her, even though it's not on the county line in these counties where Kim gets the line. So I think that's another benefit. If he can get a healthy percentage, even if it's not a majority of where Democratic voters are, I think that puts him in a good position. That does it for our weekly hits. Coming up in our deep dive after the break, we are interviewing Alex Rorty, politics reporter at Notice, a brand new nonprofit newsroom. It is a fascinating interview, so please stick with us. Joining us today on the down ballot is Alex Rorty, a politics reporter for NOTICE, which stands for News of the United States. NOTICE is a brand new publication from the nonprofit, nonpartisan Alberton Journalism Institute. Alex, it is so fantastic to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much, David. I really, really appreciate it. And it's, uh, it's exciting to be here. It's exciting to find a podcast that talks about down ballot races. And I know that I can nerd out about this stuff as much as, as you guys, because it's, it's sometimes hard to find, even in Washington. Well, I absolutely love hearing about that. I mean, nerding out is our middle name. So we will get to all the down-ballot nerdery that our listeners can possibly handle. But before we do, Alex, I would love for you to tell us all about Notice, because that was my inspiration for wanting to make sure we had you on the show because it seems like such an unusual and interesting new publication at a time of incredible disruption in the media industry. So tell us about Notice and what its goals are and why it was launched. Yeah, I mean, I I really think that Notice is one of the few positive stories in journalism right now. I mean, it's just a very grim time in the industry, as I'm sure y'all and, and many of uh, the listeners know. But, you know, Notice was formed, we actually just launched in January, and it is a nonprofit newsroom. And it's it's a little different than a lot of newsrooms. It, it has a dual mandate. One of the mandates is what you've come to expect from newsrooms. We cover politics, we cover campaigns, we cover Capitol Hill, we write stories about it that appear on the website, and it functions like a traditional newsroom. That's the part that that, that I'm a part of. And that's the part that you, when you read a lot of our stories, that's what you'll be reading. The, the other mandate, though, is, is actually an educational one. We are kind of like a teaching hospital. I like the joke, we have a lot less education here than the doctors at a teaching hospital. But we are trying to train the next generation of journalists uh, to learn to be political reporters, whether in Washington or anywhere else. You know, right now we have 10 fellows. I point out that they receive full salary and benefits and everything like that, just like any other employee. And, you know, they are both receiving uh, like a curriculum, classroom instruction, both when they started and on an ongoing basis through the All Britain Journalism Institute. And then at the same time, 
you know, they're working in notice alongside reporters like me. And the idea is that I will work closely with a lot of these fellows, kind of show them the ropes to the extent that I can. There are probably some colleagues of mine in the past who would think think twice about that. Um, <laughs> maybe some bosses of mine in the past who would wonder about that. But that is the idea to to help them learn and and to grow as as journalists. Because look, and this is really the whole impetus for this project for this newsroom. Again, you know, journalism has taken a lot of hits, not just recently, but over the last 10 to 20 years. And one of the things that's happened, one of the things is that the places journalists used to go to learn the trade, to learn the craft, they just don't exist anymore. Whether it's the small newspaper, I started out at a small newspaper in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I think it has maybe one fifth the number of reporters it did when I was there, you know, 15 years ago at this point. You know, or, or regional newspapers. They just don't, they, the jobs just aren't there. The pathways, the traditional career pathways are different now. And, and, and if you do get a job at one of those places, that's great, but you're not going to be in a situation where people are sitting down and teaching you, right? You're going to have to, either you're sinking or swimming, and that's a way to learn. But another good way to learn is to have someone who's had experience in the field who can take the time to explain stories, both how you report them, what do you need, what you can do better, and, and then when it comes to the writing as well. So we're trying, we're trying to fill in that, that gap right now, and we're trying to do it you know, by finding fellows from all walks of life in America. There are people here who this is a second career. They spent the first part of their career in the, the Army. Wow. Uh, we have people who really make me feel incredibly old uh, because they are very young, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and, you know, but they're all, I say it's like an optimistic point. It's not just because, you know, we're a newsroom and, hey, all the our paychecks come on time and, and all that, you know, and we're able to publish stories. Working with the fellows, people still who still want to enter this field, this industry, people who are at the beginnings of their careers, it's it's really inspiring. You know, it's really encouraging to me because that's the moment journalism truly dies is when that stops happening. You know, when people stop being interested in joining, and and you know, at least here, that's not the case at all. And so it's it's really been fun, uh, pleasant experience for me so far here. And like I said, we're, we're new. So there's, there's always a, a learning curve, but I think we've been able to write a sort of pretty broad variety of stories, again, focused on politics and campaigns and, and Capitol Hill. Um, you know, that is, it's been an impressive record of journalism so far in, in my own, obviously biased, but humble opinion. Now, not to make you feel even older, but I did want to sort of go through for Listeners who maybe don't pay a lot of attention to sort of the inner workings of, of journalism, just sort of compare, you know, how political journalism was like when you first started and sort of the lay of the land and how that has changed, you know, particularly, like you said, at the, the local and state level. Obviously, there's still a bunch of national reporters in Washington, D.C. covering the president and like the speaker and et cetera. But down at those lower levels, how that's changed so much for journalism. It's a great question. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I got my start at the Carlisle, Pennsylvania newspaper. It was called the Sentinel. Believe it or not, y'all, it was an evening newspaper at that point. This was what? 2007. But it actually, we published, by that time, it was more like an early afternoon paper. And we published around lunchtime 
But I would come in in the morning and our deadline would be, say, like 10 a.m. or even earlier than that, which, yeah, rest assured, does not exist anymore. But, you know, even at the state level, I did a lot of reporting in Harrisburg covering Rendell's, Ed Rendell's second term as governor of Pennsylvania. I mean, that was a full-time legislature. You had, I would say, when I joined at 20 or more reporters in the, the press room then. And, you know, to be clear, I think a lot of state capitals across the country were already seeing pretty steep declines in the number of state house reporters that they had even at that time. But it was still robust, right? You still had what you really need with journalism is just a bunch of good reporters all approaching the same stories from different angles or different stories you know, that other people aren't writing about. And you just had a very healthy mix of, of journalism. Those, those kind of jobs, and, and particularly at state houses, they're just very rare now, you know, and, and I couldn't tell you how many reporters are left in, in Harrisburg, but it's a lot fewer than when I was there. You know, I, I know that for sure. And some state capitals, it's hard to find sometimes even a single full-time reporter. And, and again, I don't have to explain this to, to y'all or, your, or the listeners, but like what happens in state houses is so important. You have so much money that's being allocated. You have so many important state policies often laws that have more effect on your daily life. You know, I mean, I remember in Pennsylvania, this is old hat now, but, you know, covering a smoking ban, yep. you know, whether or not you would be able to smoke in restaurants. It's just critically important, but uh, the, the, there's just so much less coverage than, than there used to be. And, and I would make the same point I made earlier. You know, you can have, you will still have coverage. Like the Associated Press will have someone, you know, in a state capital, in Lincoln, Nebraska, or anywhere else, you know, Austin or other places. But if you're only getting that one story and only that one wire story, you're missing something. You're missing deeper investigation. Sometimes you're missing someone writing about the same story from different angles, which is always going to be the case, should always be the case. And, and that's really changed. And, and it's, it's very sad. I mean, I love state house reporting. I love reporting in, in Harrisburg. But one thing that's in the back of your mind is just whether or not there's financial stability there. And if you lose your job, which, you know, is, I mean, it's literally happened to me before. It's happened to many, many my colleagues and friends. Where do you go after that? I mean, that's why you see some convergence in Washington or New York for journalists, because if you do, God forbid, lose your job here, there are other jobs in, in media uh, that, that you could hopefully apply for and, and get. Um, now, I know I'm sure our listeners want to talk all about the special election and all the things going on, but I do have one more question about journalism and then we'll, we'll get to the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. As, you know, for-profit journalism has been in decline for the past, you know, 15 plus years, no one's really solved it outside of being the New York Times. So alternatives have popped up like notice, like we've seen other, you know, state-based nonprofit newspapers or, or things like that. How does nonprofit journalism, does it feel differently? Are there, are there different, you know, sort of incentives or work within it now that you've sort of transitioned from the, the for-profit places that you've worked to now working in a nonprofit newsroom? Yeah, it's, 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 it's another good question. It is a little different. I would say I, you know, I hesitate to get too specific with things, but most reporters will will tell you pretty readily about page views and how cognizant they are about how their stories do with traffic and how many readers. And you know, at a certain level, I'm certainly happy to 
you know, I want to be able to write stories that people read. I mean, it goes, <laughs> it goes without saying, um, just for my own selfish benefit, but I also want journalism to be able to, to thrive. You know, you're, you're going to have to have readers, you're going to have to have subscribers, but any reporter will tell you, is there pressure on pages? Of course there is. Does it affect decisions, uh, editorial decisions? Yes. You know, I don't know that it's quite the sort of sinister stuff you would think of in, let's say, a movie when it comes to that, or, or <laughs> what is the the old uh, Nightcrawler, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie, if you saw that uh, from years ago, where, you know, he was trying to film car crashes and, they, you know, just really sort of like period stuff. You know, I mean, that, it's not that, it's not that level, but yes, it is a pressure. But, you know, to your question, we don't have that here. You know, my... I, I try to think of what I think is a good, compelling and important story. And I, I go and try to write it. And, and that's the approach that we're, we're taking here. And, and, you know, I think that is at some level enabled by the, the nonprofit model. You know, I, I think, you know, as a nonprofit model, the silver bullet for journalism, you know, unfortunately, I don't think there are any silver bullets uh, for journalism. So I, I have really enjoyed my time here. I think the nonprofit newsroom is a major component moving forward. You know, it's a situation where I wish a thousand flowers would bloom, you know, and we would have all different kinds of models. And so we're not dependent on any any one thing. But that's the the state we're in. And and you know, it's funny, I hadn't I just before you asked the question, I hadn't really thought about page views in uh several months. And I'll just say that that is that is different than my previous experiences um, in, in journalism, and and we'll leave it at that. All right, Alex, we got to get down to the horse race here. So, what what is your specific area of coverage at Notice? That's a good question. I, I mean, it is really broadly national politics, but it's a lot of campaigns. It's going to be a lot of the presidential race naturally, but. Uh, you know, near you and I have been talking about this a long time. I really enjoy down ballot coverage. I've written about it extensively in my career, and I'm looking forward to doing some more of that, getting back into that here, in, including tracking the the New York three special election, which I really appreciate you guys holding off on talking about that <laughs> and talking about those instead into the listeners for listening because I know that that is that is the hot topic and I'm eager to talk about it as well. You know, your timing is so excellent that we happen to have you on this week because when you and I first connected years ago, it was also around another special election, the John Ossoff special election in in Georgia's sixth. So I I, I feel like this is, I know, I know. And I can't believe we're talking about Senator Ossoff now. So this is kismet. So, you know, when, 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 when Beard and I and all our colleagues and the Daily Coast Elections team, when we're covering these races, we are relying in so many ways on reporters like yourself who are actually talking to people who are on the ground or making the phone calls or just really in the center of things for your observations and the quotes that you're relaying back and the information that you're providing to your readers. And so now with this wild election, finally in the rear view, I would love to hear about your takeaways from the result and just, I don't know, any cool tidbits that maybe didn't make it into your articles or a preview of stuff to come. Well, I, I, I think one, I, I will say before the show, we were talking a little bit about the margin, how surprising it was. I will tell you, uh, I haven't reported this yet, but there are Democrats who were, we'll say, involved in the race who are very surprised. 
today about the about the margin of victory. Not that Swazi won, but I think that he won so convincingly. You know, there was a perception that that New York and, and Long Island in particular is just tough terrain for Democrats right now. I think Kathy Hochul lost that district by a, a, a large margin. Yeah, 12 you know? points. And, yes, 12 points. And, you know, there was just a thought that crime and immigration had been had really be emerged as tough issues in that sort of New York City market. So there was there was some palpable relief morning, I think, from some corners. It's always tricky. I mean, just to, you know, go under the hood here for a second, because I, I, I know y'all and the listeners kind of nerd out on this. You know, when I talk about Democrats, I'm, I'm not trying to say that every Democratic operative thought that way, you know, the consultants who worked for Swazi or or for D, the DCCC. But there are, as you know, a lot of interested groups in this race who spend considerable amount of money and put a lot of time, effort and research into this race. And, and you know, it is fair to say that I think some of them were concerned about this district. And like I said, we're, we're you know, probably relieved this morning when the result came in the way that they did. Now, you asked me for my takeaways. You know, it's it's. The, we'll put aside the national political environment and what it means, you know, for November and Biden or Trump or the battle for the House or anything like that. My biggest takeaway the morning after, and I started to pick this up in my reporting even before the results came in, that Democrats believe that the way that Tom Suozzi handled the immigration issue was key to his success there. They think that that was front and center and his ability because he was getting attacked repeatedly. Um, you guys have seen some of the ads from the NRCC and others where immigration seemed like it had emerged as the top issue as far as how people were criticizing, how Republicans were spending their money. They spent a lot of money criticizing Tom Swazi. The perception is, is that Swazi did not shy away from this fight, that he didn't, he didn't want to try to change the subject. He did talk about other issues, of course. He talked a lot, and they spent a lot of money on abortion rights, for instance. But he didn't try to change the subject. He met it head on and and really talked about, of course, now what happened in Congress with the immigration deal collapsing because of Donald Trump and Republicans not wanting basically to give Joe Biden a year, which is, I think, what a lot of them would pretty readily admit to, at least privately. You know, did that help him? Yes. But you, you saw examples of this before. And, I, you know, I did write a story last week. It was really, it really struck me because, you know, a few years ago, I was a White House correspondent for McClatchy. I was writing a lot about immigration, covered a lot of immigration policy at that time. And to see not, not just Swazi, but the Democratic Party agree to parts of this immigration deal was really in some ways stunning to me. You're talking about increasing the size of detention centers, talking about changing asylum laws. It was really a, a, a pretty hard right in some ways tack on immigration. So, but the one thing, and this was the point I really wanted to make, you know, Tom Swazi hosted a call a couple of weeks ago, or I guess it was last week. What is, what is time? Early last <laughs> week, he hosted a call with reporters, there's a lot of national reporters about immigration. And I'll never, I won't forget this. The last question he was asked was whether or not he agreed with the terminology that some Republicans were using to call this the, the surge of migrants at the border, quote unquote, invasion. Now, this is a very loaded term. This is a term that has appeared in some people's manifestos. Uh, the, the El Paso shooter in 2019 who killed 20 people outside a, a Walmart, you know, he wrote a manifesto that talked about this being an invasion. This is an incredibly racist and charged way to describe it. 
and I won't forget Swazi was asked this, and he said he didn't have an issue with the, the terminology. He said, you know, he didn't he didn't voice it back. He didn't say the word back, but he said, I don't want to take issue with the language. It's a chaotic situation at the border. Unvetted people are coming in, and that really got my radar up. Now, are other Democratic candidates going to take that approach? I, I don't know that. You know, my hunch is a lot of them would say that that's too far, both for political reasons, but also, you know, that a lot of people would just personally, you know, with, would be repelled by that. But to me, that was an example, I think, of what the lesson some Democrats are going to take for this. And they were saying it, guys, they were saying that even before the, the margin of victory, before the results came in on Tuesday, that the party shied away from this fight in 22. It really cost us, particularly in a lot of these New York districts that were that were key to the House battleground then. And we're not going to make that same mistake again. So I do think that is my biggest takeaway right now is the Democratic Party's belief that this is the approach that they have to take. And, and I think it's fair to say, you know, that it could it could really bother and, and anger some members of the Democratic Party the way that Democratic candidates talk about this issue now and some of the policies that they agree to. But we're going to have to watch that closely um, you know, over the next few months. Yeah, speaking for a moment as a partisan with feelings and progressive views, that comment from Swazi really struck me when it came out. And it, it made me feel kind of sick to my stomach. But putting my analyst hat back on, by saying that there, there were no attack ads that could be run against Swazi. And even if there were quite a lot of voters who might be appalled to hear him say that if I were living in the district, I would have been even more grossed out. But the amount of traction that kind of remark can get is simply going to be fairly small. I mean, unless Republicans were going to try running ads with Swazi's quote to try to suppress the vote among progressives. I mean, we're really talking some double bank shots here with very little time left. So, you know, I, I think I don't want to defend what he said at all. But I suppose from like a really hard-nosed political analysis, he kept them from making it into an issue. I, I, I don't know, but I would assume that that was a lot of the thinking there. And, and I'll say this, I mean, just broadly speaking, again, I think Democrats and a lot of Democratic strategists, not just the one, <laughs> the source of mine who didn't expect the result to go, you know, people who were even more confident about this race to begin with. A lot of Democrats in the, the political class are deeply worried about immigration right now. They see it in a lot of ways as having even surpassed crime as an issue. And that's the, the feedback that I've received kind of over and over again from Democrats. And I think that that explains this, this pivot we've seen and is going to explain a lot of the rhetoric we might, we might see. Like I said, I, I don't know. You know, Swazi might have been freelancing there. Who, who knows? Sometimes you, you find out you assume that there is some grand calculation for candidates explaining why they do what they're doing. And then you come to find out, no, it was just some off the cuff remark that the candidate right. and that often explains what's happening. But, but look, the, the democratic party remains very concerned about immigration as a political issue in 2024. And many, I think put it at the top of the list of their concerns right now. So that, could and will explain some of the behavior from here on out. So looking now towards November, obviously 
presidential race. Not going to not going to dwell on that one. But there's a ton of down ballot races, Senate, some governors, you know, 435 House races, lots below. What are a few key races that you're going to be keeping an eye on this year as we move towards November and, and as things start to develop and shake out? Okay, so there are two that catch my eye, and maybe not coincidentally, they're in two of my favorite states. One is actually the the North Carolina governor's race. That is a one of the few presidential year gubernatorial battles that that we have. So that it's always when you look at North Carolina now, a swing state, you always in a presidential year you have the governor's race running alongside it. And what I'm there are a lot of reasons I'm fascinated by that. One. I think Democrats, based on some of my reporting, including the the Biden campaign, are going to make a major push in North Carolina um, in 24. I think they see it as a state. And they've been laying a lot of ground. If you look, if you count the number of times that a Biden cabinet official has visited North Carolina, you would very quickly run out of fingers and toes over the last couple of years. They have made a concerted effort to, to reach out to the state's voters. But part of the reason, part of the reason is the assumption or belief that the state's Republican lieutenant governor, Mark Robinson, is going to be the gubernatorial nominee in North Carolina. If he is, he, he does face a primary. It's not a sure thing. Um, and there's some rumblings when you talk to people there that it's not quite a slam dunk. But he is a, you know, if you're not familiar with Mark Robinson, his rhetoric and the way that he has talked about issues in the past, even in these times, really kind of cuts through and grabs people. The way that he has talked about women, the way that he has talked about abortion, the way that he has talked about the LGBTQ community is is jarring in a lot of ways. And it goes further than what we've seen even from, say, Donald Trump. And and so there are a lot of, you know, the North Carolina governor's race on its own is a big deal. North Carolina is a, a large, important state. Democrats are likely to run Josh Stein, the attorney general, who is kind of next in line for Democrats there after after Governor Cooper, you know, and and I'm interested. So it's twofold. It's both the the race and whether or not are some voters just so desensitized at these comments that even what Mark Robinson has said won't cut through. Um, I suspect that it will. I think a lot of Republicans in the state are worried that it will. I'm also interested, though, frankly, how it does affect the presidential race. You know, we talk so often about the top of the ticket dictating what happens lower down the ticket. And that does happen. That is the way it usually goes. I'm wondering, though, if these sort of both barrels, if you will, of Trump and Mark Robinson on the ballot, there's just another tranche of voters in the research triangle or suburban Charlotte or wherever say, uh, I just can't, you know, and either they sit out the race or they, they vote Democrat. And so I'm, I'm fascinated to see that. The other race that I'm watching, uh, this is a state that many people think I'm actually from. I'm actually from, I grew up in Houston, but I spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania. I got my professional start in Pennsylvania. Uh, Matt Cartwright running in the state's eighth congressional district, whether or not he can continue to hold on. This is a district that the Cook Political Report ranks as a toss-up, like a Democratic toss-up right now. Cartwright is the kind of Democrat who Republicans have been targeting cycle after cycle now. I covered his 2018 race, which at the time, you know, it was a district. This is the back up real quick to explain to people. This is in Northeast Pennsylvania. This is kind of the Scranton and Scranton area. And it's, you know, this is a, a, a district that Paul Kondorski had represented for decades, but it's been trending Republican, like a lot of sort of more blue collar areas. You know, Republicans, again, they, they targeted it heavily 
in 18. They made a real effort. Republicans really, you know, this is a district that they thought that they could go on offense with. But but Cartwright is a good match for the district. He is he is the kind of Democratic lawmaker who does not need to be reminded to talk about Social Security. I'll put it that way. I, you know, when I was with him campaigning, he talks about Social Security and other entitlement programs early and often. And I'm just fascinated to see if he can hold on again in a, in a, you know, in a district that in theory, Donald Trump could compete and do well in if Matt Cartwright is able to to separate himself and rise above. So those are the the two races that I'm I'm paying close attention to. I like those as bellwethers a lot. I, I find the Cartwright story so interesting. You know, he was one of just five Democrats in 22 who won a Trump seat. You'll recall, I'm sure, Alex, that in 2012 he won a primary against Tim Holden, who was a much more conservative Democrat holding himself out as somewhat more in tune with, I don't necessarily want to say that he was advertising himself as a progressive, but definitely more in tune with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And so it's so interesting to me that he is now successfully adapted to representing what is now one of the most conservative districts held by a Democrat. Yes. Yeah. You know, again, I wrote a longer story in the district in, in 2018 and spent a lot of time with him then. And it was just the degree to which he was able to route every question that he was asked you know, because he was, he, you know, he's out in the community, he's talking with people, he's not hiding or anything like that. The degree to which he was able to route every question into an answer about social security and the importance of protecting that program and, and others and things like Medicare and then talking about local issues. I mean, you're absolutely right there. I mean, he has absolutely adapted to the, the district. It's, it's a little bit of a broader meta story for someone like me who covers politics. I, I deem this, I, I consider this unfortunate for our democracy, but also for the, for my, for my journalism and for stories that are, just decades ago, there was so much more of an ability, seemingly, for politicians to have their own individual identity, right, and carve out their own niche with voters, their own set of issues and priorities. And, and the truth is, it's just that's just not how it works very often anymore. Your ability to separate and distinguish yourself from the national political climate or the presidential ticket is just less and less and less. And of course, exists. It's a big question for the John Testers. And Sherrod Browns of the world, even to some extent, Bob Casey, I think, in Pennsylvania, they still can do it. I'm not saying that candidates don't matter. Of course they do. Of course the campaigns they run matter and, and all that. But, you know, objectively, they matter less than they used to. And so I'm always interested in candidates who are able to still do that a little bit. And Cartwright's one of them. And you're absolutely right. He's one of the few to win a Trump district um, in 22. He was able to do it in 16. And, and so... It's just fascinating for me to watch to see if they're if they're able to to keep doing this over and over again. Well, we have been joined today on the down ballot by Alex Rorty, politics reporter at Notice News of the United States. Alex, before we let you go, where can listeners find you and your work, and where can they learn more about Notice and follow what your organization does? Yeah, so the the easiest way we have a we have an old school website. It's www.notus.org. That's the key part, not .com, .org, because again, we are nonprofit, and you can follow our work there. If you want to sign up for our newsletter, that's a key part of how we distribute all our stories. That's readily available online. We have not just links to our work, but little 
character bios about people who work here and trying to explain their origin story or why they're here or things like that. So it's a good way to get to know the, the Notice team here. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter, though I'm on Twitter a lot less than I used to be um, at Alex underscore Rorty. And I think I'm just Alex dot Rorty at threads. But social media seems a little bit less important <laughs> than it did five or six years ago or useful, I, I should say. I mean, obviously, it's still important, you know, so notice.org. That's that's the place to go. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the down ballot. Thanks for having me. All. It's, it's always fun to there are many people who in Washington who like to nerd out about the stuff like you guys do. So I really appreciate the chance to do it. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Alex Rorty for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our editor, Drew Roderick, and we'll be back next week with a new episode.